Hi, everyone. Chris has foolishly uh, allowed me to preach today, so apologies in advance. Uh, but we're going to have Matt come up and read our psalm for today. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Bring tidings every day of his rescue. Recount among the nations his glory, among all the peoples his wonders. For great is the Lord and most praised. Awesome is he over all the gods. For all gods of the peoples are ungods, but the Lord has made the heavens. Greatness and grandeur before him, strength and splendor in his sanctuary. Grant to the Lord, O families of peoples, grant to the Lord glory and strength. Grant to the Lord his name's glory, bear tribute and come to his courts. Bow to the Lord in sacred grandeur, quake before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world stands firm, will not shake. He meets out justice to peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth exult. Let the sea in its fullness thunder. Let the field be glad and all that is in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest joyfully sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He judges the world in justice and peoples in his faithfulness. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So, in between our various sort of sermon series here at the church, Chris has asked us to preach on the Psalms. This is kind of hitting me in the face. And I'm glad that he has, because it's allowed me to think about what they're actually for. It's easy to treat them as if they were some sort of ancient Near Eastern journal entry or blog post. The expression of someone else's experience of God we can keep safely at a distance from our own. We aren't given that luxury, though. Instead, when we read or pray or sing these psalms like we have this morning, thank you, that was really beautiful, we're taught to speak them as our own words, for these feelings to be made our feelings, for these desires to be made our own. Through them, we're given the language to name our feelings and conditions in the light of God's presence within them. Christians have often talked about the Psalms as if they contain all the possible movements of the human soul, that they didn't leave anything out. They give us a mirror of our own condition, push us towards praise and gratitude, even if that looks like lament, as so many of the Psalms do. However, our Psalm for today is no lament, it's a praise dance overflowing with reasons for giving honor and glory to God. We're told to sing along, to tell everyone and everything to sing along as well. All of the reasons given for why God deserves all this fanfare, strength, grandeur, righteousness, justice, etc., boils down to one. God is king, the one who reigns in power over heaven and earth. And it's easy for us to see this kingly imagery as kind of a handy metaphor and not much else. 
but that fails to see how God's reign sort of presents a direct competition to the flesh and blood kings of the earth. See this psalm, along with many of the others written that sort of talk about God as king, were written right around the Babylonian exile when Israel is stripped of its land and forced to serve a foreign king along with the gods who propped him up. So with that in mind, these words are proclaiming who's really in charge by telling us how and why we should praise the Lord, even when the evidence of this reign is hard to come by. And the main thing for the psalmist, I think, is this. For all the gods of the peoples are ungods, but the Lord has made the heavens. God's faithfulness is tied to his work of creation. The Lord reigns because the world stands firm. It will not shake. It's this act which sets the God of Israel apart from all of the other ungods, as this translation puts it, which I really love. That masquerade is rulers demanding obedience from the world. It's only the Lord who has made heaven and earth, and so it's only him who is worthy of worship and reverence. And so with that in mind, it's helpful to note that the creation story we have in Genesis, the one we sort of shape our thoughts around, was one of many in competition in the ancient world that tried to explain why anything exists at all. And usually these other accounts are kind of the result of some cosmic bloodshed, God's fighting and one ending up on top of the dog pile to whom all else must serve. And further than that, the rest of the world, particularly human beings, are made to provide food for the gods and their needs. So we're sort of cosmic waiters for our entire lives. And I think these other stories give such a rich depiction of what we would call an idol. Things which foolishly claim to be ultimate, but over and over again, simply use us to provide for its needs. How else do power, money, or violence actually work as well as they do, just to name a few? It's also a safe bet that anyone sort of becomes something like whatever it is that they worship, precisely because they think it explains what the world is really like at its root. So if someone believes they live in a world where violence and scarcity are written into the very order of things, it only makes sense to play along, seeing everyone else as a threat that must be avoided. It's not hard to find people, presidential candidates, and entire societies who fit this description, and we probably find it in ourselves more often than we'd like to admit. However, Creation as we see it in Genesis, our story, gives us a radically different picture. There is no violent jostling for power, but the still small voice of God's word bringing order out of chaos. It's peace, not violence, that lies at the root of things. Further than that, it presents a really rich reversal to these other depictions of people created to feed the gods. Instead, it is God who feeds us digging his hands in the dirt he has made to plant a garden to feed the other bits of dirt into which he has breathed his life, us. God does not need to be fed, but feeds, a fact he continually reminds the Israelites whenever they start to think of their sacrifices as some sort of bargaining chips with God. So we see in creation that God rules over all, but that he reigns in gentleness and delight giving out of abundance rather than demanding out of lack. As Psalm 95 puts it, 
We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, those who are at every moment led and nourished by God's inexhaustible gifts that he gives to his children. This is at least part of what early Christians were trying to convey when they said that God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. In the beginning, there is only God, and there is no other precondition for ourselves and our world than the abundance of his love. God doesn't need us in order to fill some psychological need. He doesn't need us to have a few extra hands on deck to finish a few building projects he didn't get around to. He doesn't need us at all, but instead loves us into being. Our lives are gifts all the way down, however hard it is for us to see it. The gods of the other nations, the gods of Israel's oppressors, the gods of Babylon, America, and otherwise are ungods. They're nobodies because they can't do this. They may seem mighty, but in the end they can only make demands. Abundance reigns over lack every single time. And again, this same rule of worship and imitation applies here as well. As those who claim to worship a God who creates a world of abundance and peace, the shape of our lives must fall in line with this order of things. Our life together as a church should bear witness to this. We are not those who live governed by a fear of lack, but we give abundantly, knowing that such giving is the only reason we're here at all. And it's hard to think of a more blissfully simple parable of this than our potlucks, where lentils and bojangles can make peace with one another in order to feed anyone who happens to stumble through the door. I don't, I don't really know anywhere else that really happens. They're usually at war. We aren't those who see others as threats, but as gifts and opportunities for joy. That is what the church is. The psalmist asks us to proclaim God's reign to the nations, a pretty innocuous term for our ears, but what other less subtle translations call the heathen, the ones who are trying to kill you. God isn't content with the tribal jealousy of these other idols, but reaches outward to include the hostile and inhospitable in on the song, and we are the hands and feet that are to welcome them in. It's a tall order, but the one that lines up with the way the world actually is. And see the last few verses of this psalm that speak of even the seas thundering, fields exalting, and forests singing. They show us that worship is not so much something we do as it is something we join, participating in all of creation's worship of the God who has loved it into being. It's good news. But if we're honest, this vision of the world is not one that's very easy to maintain on a day-to-day -day basis. After every injustice witnessed, every anxiety fulfilled, every fear realized. It's really easy to see the appeal of these other creation stories. It makes a lot more sense to see the world's beginning as some random act of violence, if such random acts are what we encounter whenever we leave these four walls. Speaking of abundance seems naive or even cruel in the face of such crushing lack. We wouldn't have to walk very far in this neighborhood to be challenged. How are we supposed to praise God for a world that is so often mutilated? When the psalmist proclaims the world will not shake, 
It's tempting to ask if they had ever heard of an earthquake or a drone strike. And all of these questions reach back to what the Psalms are for, what all of our worship is for. See, our worship trains us to see, to see the world rightly, not as some meaningless, violent order determined only by who has the most power, but the world of peace and abundance that God has made and given to his children. In times that the world feels only like constant rupture, it is our worship that helps us to remember that this is not the way it's intended to be. It continually reminds us that there is an order to things, God's order to things. And that fact allows us to feel and name the disorder around us as the violation that it is. Again, this is why so many of the other psalms are laments, struggling to praise God in the midst of the suffering that tries to contradict his reign. So we can only name tragedies if we know that things should be otherwise. Why else would we care? However, I think the end of the psalm gives an answer to this nagging question. The whole earth can still sing to God amidst the weight of contradiction because the Lord comes to judge the earth. The word judgment rings a bit odd in our ears as something to hope for, particularly if we see it as something punitive or even angry. However, this kind of thinking neglects the fact that the Lord comes to judge the earth that he has made, known, and loved. He wants to vindicate the truth about the world that is so often hidden through power, oppression, and deceit. This is judgment that restores, because it is the judgment of the one who knows the world more intimately than it knows itself and still loves it. W.H. Auden puts it really well. God will cheat no one, not even the world of its triumph. See, in the end, God's judgment, his final word about the world that we're in, looks like Jesus. It looks like the one through whom all things were made, the one in whom all things hold together, joining creation as its brother and Lord in order to turn it back towards the God who loves it. He is the one who shows us what new creation looks like, where the world is allowed to flourish once the sin that distorts it is destroyed. He is the judge judged in our place, who rises up with death under his feet. Valleys are filled and mountains are made low in him. It is he who shows us what the world is really like, the place where God gives himself to us in love. No other story is allowed to stand in its place. And no other king is allowed to reign. This is something worth singing about, joining the rest of the world in its song. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that, that you reign, that you reign in might, and peace, and gentleness, and justice. And that the world is not determined by violence, but by your love. May we believe that this morning. May our church live that this morning, and every other morning. May we show the world what the world is really like. That it is the place of God's love, and it is the place where Christ has come to die, and to be raised again. 
that it is the place you will restore and are restoring. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.